following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. What is up, everyone, and welcome to the Diabetes Podcast, where we discuss how to take control of your health and gain the freedom to live the life that you deserve. I'm Gary Pano, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Grady Donahoe, who is a board-certified chiropractic internist. And welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Diabuddies. It's good to uh, do another recording and, and chat with, uh, with you, Dr. Grady. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited about what we're about to talk about today. Yeah, it's good to be back and rolling again. Yeah, we, yeah, we definitely stalled a little bit for various reasons uh, to, in terms of just content that we were producing for this and, and how much we were preparing and getting episodes out. But uh, I'm excited that you, you know, Grady, you and I are about to just uh, keep rolling at a pace that we were at before, if not more, you know, we'll see, we'll see how life goes. It's, yep. um, you know, 2020 has been such an adaptation year for everybody and this podcast is no different. So today we're going to be talking about essentially fat is what we want to get to. But before we get just talking about fats and maybe eventually the ketogenic diet, uh, we want to talk about just insulin resistance, insulin sensitivity, and glucose control. And what is it? What are the things that actually affect it? We've talked about these things in the past, but we want to have a different look uh, at this uh, because there's so much data that can look from so many angles because we're wonderfully complex. Uh, so uh, excited to dive in just in this idea of what is insulin resistance, Grady? So uh, I guess we'll just start off with that. And me asking you uh, at a very surface level, you know, what's your quick one sentence answer to insulin resistance? Yeah. So I would to very simply put insulin resistance is essentially your cells no longer um, respond to insulin as mm-hmm. well as it does normally. So for example, um, you take, you eat a high carb meal and your body then raises its blood sugar because you're absorbing more sugar in and therefore it then increases the insulin and the insulin acts on the cells to bring the sugar into the cells and out of the bloodstream. And um, we can see that effect based off of um, our monitoring the blood sugar. So we can do that either finger stick or with continuous glucose monitors. And um, based off of that effect, we can see how well your body is bringing or your cells are bringing that glucose into the cells. And if it's reacting to insulin um, um, at a quality um, response. I like that word at the end, a quality response. Uh, because the quality of that response is going to depend on a lot of different factors. Uh, and also when I feel like we need to cl- like qualify exactly who and what we're talking about, because it's easy to think about insulin resistance and insulin just in general as a type one diabetic, which you and I both are. Uh, and then insulin resistance for type twos and the rest of the population, just because we think we literally are using insulin in a way that no one else is, mm-hmm. right? 
Uh, it's so in a non-type 1 diabetic, in somebody who is producing insulin, even if it's a non-normal amount or, you know, the concentrations and how much the insulin is being produced in somebody is altered, uh, there's still this feedback loop. There's so many feedback loops, both with the nervous system autonomically, as well as hormones that control that. And as type ones, how we think about insulin sensitivity and resistance might be noted that it could be different than anyone and everyone else. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. And like a good way to think about this is as a type one diabetic, you have to work with your body. Whereas as a normal person or a type two diabetic, your body is trying to work together when it within itself. So like, in regards to a type one diabetic, there's a ro rogue soldier trying to help out. But at the same time, that rogue soldier has a hard time fitting in really well. And so that's us <laughs> by injecting insulin into our subcutaneous tissue. It's much different than the pancreas being told what to do by the brain or different hormones or whatever it is, because then it's, it works much more synergistically together. Whereas with type one diabetes, we're kind of in some ways telling the body what to do and therefore it can um, affect many other systems and it just affects your physiology a little bit different. Um, whereas um, with a type two diabetic or a normal person. Yeah. So the, cause as a type one diabetic, you're thinking like we're thinking about insulin, but we think about insulin for the purpose of glucose control, right? Mm -hmm. We want our A1C number down. We want to see a flat line on CGMs, or we want to be able to prick our finger and have it be a good number where we feel good. We know another diabetic would say, yeah, they're doing a good job. Or the endocrinologist would say, you're doing a good job. Like we're literally thinking about insulin to compensate another number mm -hmm. where in reality, uh, you know, insulin does more things than just glucose control. Yeah. Right. And, and in fact, uh, you know, in preparing for this podcast, you know, I was reviewing a lot of literature and I found one review article that was published in 2019 that was commenting on just this, right? And before this expert that, I'm, that I'll briefly read, it was talking about how even in a type one diabetic with normal glucose, normal glycemia, there's still a risk for cardiovascular complications. Okay. And then here, let me just read this quote. In contrast, intense control with metformin leading to insulin resistance improvement uh, reduces diabetes complications, including cardiovascular events, suggesting that the enhancement of insulin sensitivity rather than plasma glucose level has a major role in improving diabetes outcomes. So the point is that as type ones, we're thinking only from getting the glucose control, but we're not necessarily thinking about what, how much insulin are we giving? What else are we doing with our bodies to change our insulin sensitivity? Like we are only thinking about input in insulin, output good reading, where there's so many other factors that might be even more important to insulin sensitivity and therefore our long-term health. Yeah, yeah, so I think there's, a, there's two points I wanna make based off of that. One being insulin, like you said, does so many or has an effect on so many th different things in the body. Um, it's almost like uh, throwing a, a pebble in a pond. There's a ripple mm -hmm. effect that goes throughout the body through many of the different systems in the body um, based off of that insulin. So 
just looking at your blood glucose level doesn't necessarily tell you if you're healthy or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's important for people to realize that because just because your A1C looks really good doesn't necessarily tell you the whole picture. And um, so I think having this conversation, conversation or bringing that point up, I think is really helpful for a lot of people because um, we tend, it's really easy to fall in that, um, that rut of only focusing on, hey, my blood sugar is good. And so, um, you know, everything else should be healthy then. And I think the other point that you can glean from that is the insulin sensitivity part. So that that paper kind of illustrates the importance of insulin sensitivity. So we've talked about many ways of enhancing that insulin sensitivity. And I think the point to glean from that is that the more insulin sensitive you are is almost a good indicator of how healthy and how efficiently your body is working. So if your body is working really efficiently, you know, the likelihood is your body's working at a very high level. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of an indicator of health almost. Yeah, no, I would agree. But then I think there can be extremes of that too on the opposite end, right? Uh, sometimes efficiency, you know, in general, efficiency could mean speed, right? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes speed of things can actually be a detriment, right? Uh, you know, if you are so insulin sensitive, this actually happens in hyporeactive uh, glycemic people like you and I definitely um, know a few people that only get low blood sugar symptoms. They're not diabetic whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And, and that's part of the, you know, a part of a patho- pathological insulin resistant model. Yeah. But like literally sometimes people can be so sensitive to insulin that they just drop, yeah. right? Like crazy. And let's say you and I, you know, I'm not sure what your one to, what your carb to uh, insulin ratio is right now, Grady, but like, you know, mine's always for a while stayed around one to 10, you know, and we'll just Mm -hmm. say it's one to 10. But if I was like one to 20, one to 30, you know, that's less insulin. So you'd think that's a good thing, Mm -hmm. but for adaptation purposes to life, that makes it things that could be, make things complicated. Mm -hmm. That means I have to be way more precise with my dosing or or the same thing, your body has to be way more precise and there might not be because it's so fast, right? Like if you were ever like doing things on the computer and somebody was trying to help you, they're looking over your shoulder and you're moving so fast and the other person's like, wait, slow down. I can't see what's going on. Mm -hmm. That could be happening in the body as well. If you have things too fast, it might be inefficient because you have to go backwards and kind of backtrack your way. And the body would do that with different types of hormones and glucagon, you know, and try to raise things back up. Like, I think there can be a swing to too much efficiency and too much speed as well when it comes yeah. to that. Yeah, definitely. That's a really good point. Um, because if you're too efficient, like you said, you, your body may not have a quick enough or a long enough time to respond to that drop or that, um, that plummet in blood sugar. Um, and at the same time, if it's doing that, you're going to be, um, having to produce a lot of stress hormones and adrenaline and stuff like that, which then wrecks havoc on other systems in the body. So, uh, yeah, that's a really good point. You don't necessarily want to be the most efficient person as re- in regards to insulin sensitivity. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are then, what are ways that you can measure both maybe clinically 
you know, just with a patient, whether it be symptoms or um, on blood labs or, you know, what are ways that you could measure, Doc, insulin sensitivity? Yeah, so there's, a, there's a, many different indicators that you can kind of look at. But as far as testing goes, um, there's, there's several different things on the blood work that you can look at. So um, obviously, you have fasting glucose, which by itself isn't necessarily the greatest thing because you can miss things if you just look at uh, glucose, whether it's um, on the low end of the spectrum or on the high end of the spectrum. If they're fasting, then that can sometimes, you know, in and of itself, bring their fasting blood sugar down enough to where okay. it looks it looks normal, but they may not be responding that well, um, say after a meal or something like that. So, mm. um, so we've talked about hemoglobin A1C, and there's some faults with that as well. So you're not necessarily always going to catch things with that, but if it's something you know clinically wrong, so like you know, to the spectrum of type two diabetes, you're likely going to catch that. Um, but before you even get to that, I would say some of the better indicators are actually looking at the lipid panel. So, um, the, the two, two or three things that I like to look at are first the total cholesterol and the triglycerides. So total cholesterol should be, uh, total cholesterol to triglyceride should be about a two to one ratio. Um, so you should have twice as much total cholesterol as you do uh, triglycerides. Um, those tri- triglycerides are really the big indicator. So if you have a lot high triglycerides, um, one of the most common and um, most pertinent thing to those triglycerides is blood sugar. So if your blood sugar is um, elevated for a long time or even just having lots of spikes, you're likely going to see an elevation in those triglycerides. And so you can look at that, um, that cholesterol to triglyceride ratio, and that can give you a, a good indication. And then also looking at um, triglyceride to HDL ratio. Um, okay. And I believe that should be below 3.5. Um, and that's actually probably um, a better indicator. If that one is above 3.5, then... Um, it's a pretty good indication that you have some insulin resistance going on. Mm. Now, I'm super fascinated about this. I need, a, I need to continue to research, continue to read, continue to have conversations on lipids just in general. Mm-hmm. I think you and I are on uh, the right side of um, modern literature and understanding of lipids where we aren't necessarily afraid of them. We aren't afraid of cholesterol aren't afraid of LDL. Um, and we're thinking about these differently. Um, you know, particle size for, you know, LDLs are really important. Um, there's stuff I have in my Amazon, uh, wish list, like three textbooks just on like lipids that I want, I want to buy and read for myself. But, uh, can you try to, as best as you can explain those things, you know, why is the HDL, um, to triglycerides and cholesterol to triglycerides uh, and, and maybe quickly before you even go into those, just for anyone who doesn't know, who might not understand even what those words really mean, start off there, like, you know, quickly explain what those are and then maybe the biochemistry and how that could be related to insulin uh, sensitivity and reflect insulin sensitivity. Yeah. So, so I'll kind of take you through the spectrum. So when you eat a meal and it has carbohydrates in it, your body 
so it first goes into the small intestine and is, is absorbed. And before it goes into general circulation, it passes through the liver. And so the liver is your buffer zone. So if I were to have 75 grams of carbs in my meal, I don't want 75 grams of sugar floating around in my blood because that's a really high concentration and that's going to be really dangerous. You would, you would literally die. Yes, you would. Like um, when, when we measure our blood sugar, it's 100 milligrams, not 75 grams. Yeah, a milligram exactly. is literally a thousandth you know, of a gram. Mm -hmm. uh, anyways, go ahead. Yeah, so, um, so your liver is that buffer zone. So it hits the liver, and the liver has to do something with that excess glucose so it doesn't hit the bloodstream. So what it does is it's going to store that excess glucose as glycogen. So glycogen is your kind of your energy storage in the liver. And then um, the rest of it is sent into the bloodstream where it can be utilized. And then in times of starvation, you can break down that glycogen and use it for sugar and energy. Now, if I continue to have that high carb meal and my liver can't keep up with that, well then your body is going to um, store that or convert it into fat and store it away. So the easiest way to do that for the liver is to make triglycerides. And so that is why when we start seeing higher triglycerides floating around in the blood, because it's being sent away to be stored away into the fat tissues, then um, that is why it's sort of a good indication of insulin resistance because um, there's a lot of sugar flying around and your liver is trying to protect your body by converting that sugar into uh, triglycerides. Got it. Okay. And then what, what about then, can you comment on the, how the cholesterol and HDL could play a factor in understanding insulin sensitivity? Yeah. So since you are producing a lot more fat as a result of all the sugar flying around, you're going to be having more, producing more LDLs, which is low density uh, lipoproteins, which are low density just means that there's a higher proportion of fat relative to the protein in that structure. Mm -hmm. Whereas high density lipoproteins have more protein relative to the fat. And so um, when you're producing lots of fat, you're going to be making a little bit more of those LDLs and less of those HDLs. Um, and it's, and it's not a, a significant increase as far as, um, what we compare to the triglycerides versus the LDLs. So the LDLs is more of a um, cholesterol um, package um, versus the triglycerides are a different type of fat. It's a different chemical structure. And so we don't see that massive increase that we do with the triglycerides when we're talking about the uh, cholesterol. So that's why we can use that cholesterol to triglyceride ratio um, as an indication. And then at the same time, HDL is usually very um, negatively, negatively impacted um, by insulin resistance and high blood sugar um, in this scenario as well. So when it, you will see that HDL decrease, whereas the triglycerides increase. And so when that ratio starts to get higher and higher and higher, um, it just is a sign that this whole scenario is going on. Mm, I gotcha. 
so it's, it's amazing that, you know, some people would think you only need to do a lipid panel if you're worried about heart disease. And even then <laughs> there's conversations that be had in that kind of statement. Uh, but uh, there's so much, it's almost like the lipid panel is more the lipids within your body and blood, a reflection and a result of what is going on metabolically with the sugar and the insulin and how you're just being able to handle uh, that type of environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the basic lipid panel that um, almost everyone will get in their blood work is almost useless when looking <laughs> at cardiovascular disease, but it is very valuable as far as blood sugar regulation and even some inflammatory um, things mm-hmm. so you can sometimes glean from that as well. Um, but as far as cardiovascular disease, the basic lipid panel, not really that helpful. Um, there is some lipid panels that you can get more specific details on that are actually very helpful. Um, but yeah, the basic lipid panel, um, I use it a lot more for blood sugar than anything else. Boom. There we go. That should be a tagline. Um, yeah. And, and it's all also important to have the context and another blood marker that I think is really important that I don't know why wasn't measured when we were first diagnosed. I mean, well, I guess I can't speak for your blood lab values. I've looked back in the, you know, decade plus labs that I used to get. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, at some point it would become irrelevant depending on what you're trying to do. But this C-peptide, which we've talked about before, mm-hmm. is an extremely important and interesting blood marker as well, but can be a reflection of insulin sensitivity, not, well, I guess, yeah, insulin sensitivity based on the production of insulin that you're having, mm-hmm. right? So C-peptide, uh, which is different than like C-reactive protein, I think maybe sometimes people can get that too confused if you're just kind of like starting to look at blood labs or read or understand them. Yeah. Um, so C-peptide is literally a part of the pro-insulin or as insulin is being synthesized uh, within the pancreas, maybe the brain, question mark, <laughs> go back to episode four. Um, anyways, uh, when insulin is being produced uh, and in that pathway, part of it gets cleaved and just chopped off. And what's part of that cleave is called C-peptide. And so it's literally a direct proportion, one-to-one proportion, how much C-peptide you have with somewhat how much insulin you're making. And mm-hmm. so therefore you can say, is this person making a lot of insulin or not a lot of insulin? Where the fasting insulin blood value, like you said, isn't that reliable because it could be, uh, if you're fasting, it's different than you being eating in an environment, as well as you know, it could be reacting to other things. The insulin will be literally doing things where the C, as far as I've read and understand, uh, the C peptide literally does nothing. It's yeah. just a waste product that needs to get be getting rid of. Therefore, if its only purpose is just to be destroyed, its original purpose, which was part of the function or production of insulin, you can then get a clue on, which mm-hmm. I think is really cool. Yeah. So I think the context of using that in certain situations could be really useful as well, particularly more in type two than type ones, right? Yeah, definitely. I would say it would be very helpful in not only the detection, but then also probably more so the management of type two diabetes, um, because you can see based off of how much insulin they're producing via the C peptide, and then their fasting glucose and or their other markers to say, okay, are we making an improvement? Is their C peptide coming down? Is their glucose also coming down? Cause that would indicate that things are moving more efficiently and, um, 
less insulin resistance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's kind of now take a, a step forward and talk about uh, just the adipose or the fat within our body and how that plays a role in insulin sensitivity and resistance. Because we're, we're trying to make some steps. We kind of just talked about different ways and think, ways to think about insulin sensitivity uh, and ways of measuring it and what it is. Uh, but there's something called the adipose tissue threshold theory. And this theory is a potential model uh, because in reality, just like all science, uh, it's, our, it's our best guess. <laughs> there's very few things that we are saying, this is exactly how it happens. Gravity, for the most part, is a law. Everything else about time and space is literally just a theory, just like all the things we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, a little tangent. I had some conversations this past weekend that, we're bursting my beta cells. <laughs> so yes. uh, I will reel myself back in right now. Okay. <laughs> Adipose tissue threshold theory. So this is the theory that the amount of fat you have is one of the main reasons why you become insulin resistant and it oh, systemically throughout your whole body. And so this theory is, so there's different types of fat in your body, or I'm just going to say adipose because maybe that sounds more PC and it is more accurate. I don't know. Uh, So there's different types of adipose, right? So there's your subcutaneous adipose, which is the fat directly under your skin. Uh, This is the fat that is visibly being able to be seen. And this is actually where as diabetics we use to inject our insulin and then to, you know, put our, our CGMs in and to then understand what's going on uh right so the subcutaneous fat is this first level of fat under that closer to our organs are is our visceral fat and that visceral fat is exactly what it sounds like it's fat around our viscera around our organs and that is much more metabolically active than subcutaneous fat and to get unless you have some genetic uh predisposition and you are literally have like a rare disease uh, for the most part, the order of operations is you fill your subcutaneous fat and then you fill your visceral fat. You know, there are some people that just have high visceral fat and low subcutaneous fat. That is a thing. Mm -hmm. But as you fill your adipose tissue and you make them bigger because of how much carbohydrates you're having. So like you were explaining before, more carbohydrates you're eating um, it will eventually be turned to fat once your glycogen is full. You have glycogen in your liver and your, and your muscles, like you've already said. And in that process of lipogenesis or formation of lipids, you are literally have to move that lipid somewhere else, and that ends up going the subcutaneous. But eventually, those that tissue of that adipose can become so massive and so expanded, it has nowhere else to go. And then you'll start getting more fatty acids, like you started talking about, those triglycerides, into your blood. Mm-hmm. And having big adipose cells is much more dangerous than having many small adipose cells. Mm-hmm. But once your subcutaneous adipose tissues is maxed out, you are then, or starting to, there's this threshold, there's this line where it's like, you've used so much of your subcutaneous, you're now going to start filling your visceral fat or the fat, you know, around your viscera. And then the same process happens. Mm -hmm. But because that's so metabolically active, you're going to create inflammatory messengers, inflammatory cytokines that will then add to the problem, 
because insulin resistance and sensitivity is a metabolic hormonal issue. So as this, you get more fat in this visceral fat, you now have more people communicating within your body that what makes it gritty havoc and what's going on while literally the viscera is expanding as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that event, both, both those things. So now you have you, and this all requires more insulin. You have too much sugar, you fill, fill, turn into fat, put that fat in that adipose. Then you have fat in the blood, you put it in your viscera and you, because you're using so much more insulin, it just keeps expanding. You need more and more, and then you become more insulin resistant on those cells. And then because you have more insulin and now you have more inflammation, it then be, leads to the insulin resistant model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, your adipose isn't just a storage unit. It's a, it's a hormone factory. It's a cytokine factory. It's an inflammation factory. And, um, just by having, you know, more of it. And, um, like you said, bigger cells, uh, you're going to be, um, wrecking havoc on everything in your body because, um, you're creating a lot of inflammation and like you said, insulin resistance, um, as a result. Mm -hmm. And then the worst part of it then is then once you have that inflammation from that visceral adipose, then the adipose starts to build up on your liver and then starts to build up in your muscles. And then that, you know, especially your liver, that's what we call non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Mm -hmm. You know, that is a huge, huge contributor because your liver is going to be such a metabolic powerhouse um, to coordinating all this stuff. It then just becomes way more bogged down and it's going to just make it way harder for your body to respond to when you do have carbs or when you do have a slow digesting meal, like we've talked about in the last podcast, you know, about everything about digestion. Mm -hmm. Um, This is that then complicates things exponentially more. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So you have, you have all this stuff going on and then you get to a certain point where the, you said the fat is depositing around that liver and getting that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And so essentially non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and alcoholic fatty liver disease are essentially the same thing. It's just produced by two different things. And Mm -hmm. so as a result, you're going to be losing function in that liver. So you've gotten to that point, your liver has tried to keep this at bay for so long, so long, so long. And now the liver is losing function. So now it's going to have a harder time doing its job. And yet, so if this problem or the habits that got you into this position are continuing, now it's going to have an even harder time and it's going to be losing function. And therefore, um, it can exponentially increase your, um, your problems in your health. Mm-hmm. And then what makes this even worse is chances are, you know, this isn't happening only because you're eating glucose. If you're only, you know, you very rarely does somebody just have a pure sugar diet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not even kids. Yeah. <laughs> because in America and just everywhere, if you're having a very highly processed sugar and lots of sugar in your diet, you're also having really bad fats. Mm-hmm. You're having fats in, in terms of the polyunsaturated fats that are very high in omega-6s. You're having uh, vegetable oils. You're having all these different types of fats and just having a high-fat meal and having a high-carb meal simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And Already because of the problems we, we've talked about, that then becomes an issue because as you have excess glucose and you, as you have excess fat, 
because the glucose is turning the fat, the body is innately efficient. So it says, I am going to be making fat, but you already have fat. But so it's not going to be breaking down the fat you are consuming simultaneously. Mm -hmm. It would make no sense for the body to convert glucose to fat via uh, lipogenesis and then do lipolysis or break down the fat of that's also there simultaneously. That would literally be like, why are you doing that? You know, it would, would not make any sense. So that's what then creates it even more havoc because you're having this higher fat and higher carb simultaneously. I think anybody in the nutrition world will agree because there's all these battles between uh, keto and vegan and high carb, low carb, high calorie, low calorie, you know, high protein, moderate protein, all these things. But I think pretty much everyone will, would agree having high fat, high carb, sad American diet is probably the worst thing you can do for your body um, because that is, it's, it just doesn't know what to do. And it's only going to create those triglycerides higher. It's only going to elevate the LDLs more. It's only going to be creating it more insulin resistance systemically faster. You know, it's just going to add to so much more problems. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Look, those two combos, the high fat and the high um, glucose is, is the most dangerous combination. And mm-hmm. um, our bodies just aren't, aren't built for that long term. Because if you think about it, going back to, um, you know, our ancestors, there was times of higher carb because you had um, plants that were being harvested and things like that. And then you had times where you were relying more so on protein because that would get, that's what got you through the winter. Um, mm. So our, our bodies are able to, you know, swing between those things and adapt to those situations. But both at the same time um, is usually not a great combination. And unfortunately, that's usually the best tasting things because sugar mm. and fat usually taste really good, especially in combination with each other. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, but it's an interesting thing, though, is is in this relationship with fat that we have, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then going down a little bit of a different rabbit hole, but I think it's important because talking about all of this, the, what we want to get to eventually is talking about why the ketogenic diet could be useful, right? Mm-hmm. So we've talked a little bit about insulin sensitivity. Now we've talked about... Um, you know, fat a little more, but the biggest thing and lipid panels, but you know, a big thing is that this war against saturated fat that we've had that the American Heart Association and so many people have had for so many years is saying how saturated fat is bad because of this saturated fat to LDL relationship that's been around, you know, for 40, 60 years. Mm-hmm. Or, or so, or maybe even more. I forgot when Ansel Keys did his whole seven country study or whatever. Uh, so is, can you explain, or how do you explain your patients what saturated fat is or does? Or like if they're having questions with that, how do you even tackle that? Just communicating something like saturated fat isn't the worst thing in the world. For the most part, I don't get too technical with my patients. I honestly just keep it really simple. I kind of give them a list of good fats to have um, and animal proteins or sorry, animal fats are um, usually high on that list. And so animal mm-hmm. fats are higher in saturated fats. And I would say if I don't have really had anybody necessarily ask me specifically 
um, about saturated fats. Um, I just almost describe why the bad fats are bad and not necessarily why um, they should eat the saturated fats. Um, that's just kind of based off of the flow of conversation that I've had with my patients. So um, as far as the fats not to have or that I tend to shy away from are um, like the vegetable oils. And um, so like corn oil, soybean oil, things like that, because those fats for one are polyunsaturated fats. But more importantly, mm -hmm. a lot of those fats have more, a higher concentration of trans fats. Um, and trans fats, I think everybody will, would agree on any, you know, any end of the spectrum that trans fats are not good. Um, they're very destructive and very inflammatory. And um, those vegetable oils are higher in trans fats. And at the same time, if you cook with those vegetable oils, you're going to have an even more increase in um, trans fats because those uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids, those are much easier to convert into trans fats than saturated fats. Saturated fats, it's almost impossible because those saturated fats have um, single bonds in the chemical structure and therefore they can't be flipped into a trans fat. Um, you really only get those from basically the impurities, I'll, I'll call them, or the little bit of maybe uh, polyunsaturated or monounsaturated fats that may be lying in there um, to a small degree. Um, but with those vegetable oils, um, you're going to have a much higher likelihood of, of having more of those trans fats. Yeah, I think the it's been, it's crazy how the data is so skewed because of the decades of research that has been funded by certain groups of how healthy uh, PUFAs or polyunsaturated fatty acids are. Like it's just everywhere. Like I remember uh, in one class in my master's, it, I literally was, my job was to try to find, um, you know, just data on PUFAs being bad. And literally on PubMed and all these other like scientific journal search engines, there's just so much about it being good. And that's why it says heart healthy. Um, but now there's this, when you look at the biochemistry of it, yeah, this, the dangers of, of these vegetable oils because of how inflammatory it can be. Mm -hmm. And because of the, this trans fat when you're cooking, um, yeah, with saturated fat because of the single bond um, really isn't going to turn into trans fat just by definition. And uh, I think one thing that people point out because there was such a long time correlation between saturated fat raises LDL, high LDL equals heart disease. Don't eat saturated fat. Uh, but in reality, uh, that's not the case at all. You know, the amount of saturated fat you eat actually doesn't reflect in the blood, the saturated fat that's in the blood. It's mm -hmm. two different, similar, but different saturated fats. The main saturated fat in animal meat and that we consume, and that's in like coconut oil too, is palmitic acid. But the fat that is saturated that's in our blood for the most part is palmitolytic acid. Uh, for anyone, that was probably the only time you're going to hear me say that right. <laughs> that took a lot of takes for me to say right. <laughs> Anyways, um, 
that saturated fat is different and it's actually converted um, from palmitic acid, but it's not the same. And it's not in the same ratio by any means. It's not like you instantly turn one into the other. And in fact, there was a study in 2014 where they literally were trying to prove, okay, if I just feed these people palmitic acid, what is happening to their palmolytic acid in their blood? And they jumped, it was ridiculous numbers. It was like two, three, four times like the amount that's in the blood that they consumed uh, or some ridiculous ratio and it barely budged the palmitolytic acid concentration, the saturated fat that's in our blood. But they compared that to consuming high amount of carbs. And the eating high amounts of carbs is what actually increased the saturated fatty acid, that 16 carb in our blood. Mm. And, uh, and even that, that there's so many nuances in that and is palmitic acid. Uh, there's a lot of studies saying palmitic acid is bad if it's in our blood, which is true, but it's not in our blood. But, and there's actually a lot of studies that say palmolytic acid is good and actually improves insulin sensitivity, which makes it, I'm just pointing out to this point and that it's way more complicated than mm -hmm. eating saturated fat leads to high uh, LDL that leads to coronary artery disease and cardiovascular disease. Um, it's not that simple and it's not that black and white and it's not even that, but it's, if anything, there is benefits to consuming that saturated fat in so many ways where there's so many dangers to polyunsaturated fats just by itself. Not even talking about the whole omega three to omega six ratio. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the, I think where we, we as a society got so mixed up in was looking at the uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids effect on cholesterol and LDL. So like I said before, the lipid panel isn't a great indicator of cardiovascular disease in and of itself. So by looking at that, that's what they're going on, or largely that's what they're going off of is saying, okay, polyunsaturated fatty acids are much healthier because they bring down cholesterol and LDL, whereas saturated fats typically will make it go up a little bit. And, um, and you can run into a problem there. So um, I, um, I found a study and I'll, I'll see if we can post it on the show notes. Um, but essentially the, um, they were doing this study and having people, um, actually take like teaspoons of, uh, polyunsaturated, polyunsaturated fatty acids. And I believe it was corn oil. Um, and they observed these people over time and they had a, a group that did that. And then a group, um, that basically had a normal diet of saturated fatty acids and whatnot. And what they found was what they thought initially was good. was that the cholesterol was coming down. Um, and so they deemed that as good, but then as things progressed, um, and they continued to follow these people, there was a higher death rate in the polyunsaturated fatty acid group versus the normal diet and the saturated fatty acid group. And so um, that's why it, you can fall into a trap when you just look at that lipid panel and say, hey, my cholesterol is great, uh, or my um, LDL is great. Um, but more importantly, it is what do those LDLs look like 
and what are the characteristics of those LDLs because just because the numbers look great doesn't necessarily mean that those LDLs are, are great and healthy. So, um, or, and, and it's just kind of a point to, to say, if you focus in on this one number or these groups of numbers, it's not giving you the full picture of what's going on in your body and your true health. Um, and so it's always a good idea to always take a step back and look at, try and get a bigger picture of what's going on in the body relative to the therapy that you're trying to implement. Yeah, no, I think having that in mind in terms of the blood panels is super important. One thing that well, may or may not start increasing in popularity between more functional practitioners um, is looking at omega-3s to omega-6s, right? Because that's part of the uh, issue with the polyunsaturated fats, right? Is there are fats that we literally can't make. So there's essential amino acids. There are certain proteins we can't make and we need to eat. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's certain fats we can't make that we need to eat. Mm -hmm. So essential fatty acids are just the same. And those are your omega-3s and 6s. So that's why everybody always talks about them because you mm -hmm. need to eat those. And those omega-3s and omega-6s, uh, you know, can start mainly from linoleic acid or alpha-linolenic acid. And those two things need to be in a right ratio to one another and you know where i was getting at you know maybe people will measure start measuring those in the blood but however because of the foods that we eat that are high carb that are processed is so much more linoleic acid than it does um the pathway of omega-3s and alpha linoleic acid you know uh and getting those proportions right are super important because that can affect insulin sensitivity and resistance as well kind of bring it back to our initial parts of the conversation mm-hmm yeah. So, yeah. And with those, um, with those omega threes and omega sixes, you need to have a good balance of those as well. Um, not only between omega threes and omega sixes, but also between the different types of omega threes. So, um, most supplements in the industry right now, um, or at least most supplement, uh, supplements that people get kind of out in the free market, um, as far as fish oils or omega-3s, um, they have a balance of DHA or EPA to DHA. And so there's a ratio there that you need to have in the body um, to make sure everything is functioning well. And so- um, And those are omega-3s or omega-6s? Omega-3s. Um, and so at the same time, you want to make sure that that ratio is good inside the body. So, um, so for example- in most supplements right now, they have that ratio that you need in the body. So essentially, you're just boosting everything up. So if you're overall deficient in both of those things, that's a good product to boost both those things back up. However, there are a lot of instances where there is a discrepancy between those EPAs and DHAs. And so it's not necessarily about boosting both of those up. It's also about balancing those two. So sometimes a person will need actually DHA and not necessarily much EPA or vice versa. They need more EPA and not necessarily a whole lot of uh, DHA. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's kind of hard to find uh, DHA by itself right now, just how companies kind of make those things, but that's absolutely true. Uh, and one thing in terms of the mega threes that uh, in terms of getting it from your foods that I think is really important to point out is, you know, like people will, comment like flaxseed has high 
ALA content, which is omega-3 alpha linoleic acid. Uh, however, the pathway to convert ALA down to the EPA and the DHA, um, humans are just really bad at converting ALA down to uh, what's known as steroidonic acid and so on and so forth down this pathway just because we're not, we, the enzyme is, doesn't run efficiently in us. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's important to, whether it's from supplement, whether it's from certain types of fish, you know, making sure you're getting those proportions correct and getting it from the right source and not eating, trying to um, get something that's not efficient, like eating a bunch of flaxseed, thinking it's helping you with your omega-3 ratios when in reality, for simplicity, let's just call it 5%. I really have no idea what the efficiency of the, of the enzyme is. Mm -hmm. um, but if you eat 100 grams of, which would be a lot, I would feel like, of flaxseed and only get five, gra like five grams of omega-3s, you know, that seems to be a waste, right? Mm -hmm. uh, given that's just totally arbitrary. Don't quote me on those numbers because I'm sure I'm way off on that. Mm -hmm. um, but this all gets back to that insulin sensitivity and resistance because how these fats are in the blood, these omega-3s, if you have the right proportion, it's going to combat that inflammatory cascade. It's going to help the homeostasis of the liver and of all your other B vitamins and everything else run more properly so that if you do have um, that visceral fat or you do have that subcutaneous fat that is surging the insulin within you, if you're not a type one and you're any other person, um, it's going to just continue to contribute these things. But if you have them in the right proportions, it's going to calm that storm down and th therefore actually help the uh, receptors and help the intracellular cascades within the cell work more properly and therefore have better function, therefore have better efficiency. Mm -hmm. So we've now touched on a little bit what is insulin sensitivity? We've touched on um, how we can measure those things. We've touched on the importance of the lipid panel. We've talked about fats in general um, and how we're coming out of, hopefully we're coming out of, slowly but surely coming out of a era of looking at fats in a different way because before it definitely was not accurate to what the physiology is. Um, you know, but having this conversation leads now into um, what can we do about it? You know, what is, can somebody try a ketogenic diet and what does that mean? And so Grady, can you just briefly explain, you know, what a ketogenic diet might look like for somebody? Yeah. So ketogenic diet, this is essentially, oh, obviously high fat and low carb and then protein is always, you know, it varies between who you're talking with. So you can have moderate protein, you know, somewhat low protein, or um, some people do high protein. Um, but for for the most part, you're going to have carbs being below um, about uh, 50, 60 grams of carbs per day. You know, based off of your body weight, you typically will um, have you know, about one gram of protein per body weight or uh, per pound of body weight. Um, and then the rest of it will come from fat. And um, so that's generally how, um, how people do the ketogenic diet. And there's obviously a lot of variance between that. Um, but I would say most people doing the ketogenic diet fit within that box there. 
Gotcha. Okay. Uh, yes. And it's, it's almost to a, not detriment, but, uh, to the hardcore keto people, uh, some might say it has to be super high fat, like 80% of your calories be fat, mm-hmm. uh, which almost seems like, how the heck do you do that? Yeah. Um, you know, but the thought would be that protein can turn to glucose as well. Just like how glucose can turn to fat protein mm-hmm. can turn to glucose and, uh, through gluconeogenesis. And so there, that's why there needs to be some concern of that. And that's why, you know, people on ketogenic diet, you see eating avocados, you see them um, eating egg yolks, you know, you see um, all this high fat foods and trying to minimize their protein and definitely their carbs. But uh, because the whole point then is to get into ketosis, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So turning your body into essentially a fat burning machine. So Essentially going from, you know, utilizing primarily glucose for energy. Now you're going to be utilizing fatty acids for energy. And a byproduct of burning off fatty acids for energy is ketones. And so that's why we call it ketosis is because there's going to be ketones um, kind of flying around throughout the bloodstream and, and throughout the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the, uh, the main source naturally for the body is glucose, but it's this trying to switch it instead of using glucose all the time using ketones. But typically, and as I've seen people argue why ketogenic diet is, you know, almost silly is because it was for starvation. It's literally like a mechanism that your body uses when you're starving, when you aren't back in maybe paleolithic era, like when you weren't having food that you, the people who are gathering couldn't find anything to gather. The hunters were, not getting the W's when, when it came to killing the Buffalo, uh, you know, they weren't able to eat. And so therefore they starved. And so they were turning the fat they had into energy via ketones. So ketones is this other source of energy your body can use, but typically only in a situation, uh, that is dire, right? Yeah. Well, and at the same time, you know, to a certain degree, they were probably also following, a ketogenic diet, like I said, throughout that winter time when they don't have a lot of plants that they can mm-hmm. consume to get their carbohydrates. So, so they may have had a sufficient amount of food in, in the form of meat. And therefore they were kind of following the ketogenic diet and their body was probably getting enough nutrients, but they're still in that fat burning phase. Um, so whether that fat is coming in from an exogenous source or you're getting it from an endogenous source via your belly or your visceral fat, um, your body is going to be able to burn fat more efficiently. So um, in regards to type two diabetes or even just weight loss, that's kind of the idea behind it and the mechanism behind why it tends to work really well for a lot of people is because um, like I said, your body turns into a fat burning machine. And so um, if you are, if your body is very efficient at burning fat off and utilizing it for energy, then it's much more likely to start pulling fat out of your body and utilizing it and burning it for energy. Whereas when you're in more of a a glucose um, dependent state, it's not always as efficient and therefore um, the process isn't, doesn't work always as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so can you actually explain uh, what ketosis is and why it might seem magical 
<laughs> to some people and, and what the state does to the body? Yeah, so ketosis is essentially, like I said, your body has become a fat burning machine and therefore when you utilize those fats as energy, you start producing ketone bodies. And you can start to pick up those ketone bodies. You can test it via, um, I think they have finger stick machines now that you can test it on. You can test it via your urine. And um, and so you can try and test and see, are you in ketosis? Are you out of ketosis? And you can essentially tailor made your diet. So that way you know actually what you need and what you don't need to then be in ketosis. So you can be a little bit more specific. So like I said before, there's like a general guideline for ketogenic dieting, but there's a lot of people that are going to be on very different ends of the spectrum within that box. Um, so I think a very common um, question is, is like, well, how much carbs is going to set me out of ketosis? And, and that, that answer is much different between each person, but then also depending on where your body is at that point in time, because um, there's a lot of things that go into it. What's your exercise level like? Um, and what are what's your fat stores like? Or um, what's your sleep like? A lot of that stuff will play a role in that um, as well. And so it's not always as simple as, all right, well, I stayed below 50 grams of carbohydrates, and so now I'm good. And mm -hmm. Um, back to your original question, which is um, kind of that magical state is while your body is burning uh, and utilizing those ketone bodies, um, like I said, becomes very efficient at burning off fat. And so therefore, um, that fat burning process within the body usually becomes more efficient. And um, that's where it can be really beneficial for um, people who are overweight and um, I would say the ketogenic diet is very works very well also for type 2 diabetics because, one, you're stopping that excess um, sugar intake coming into the body. And so essentially, um, you're getting to a point where now you're burnt, you've burnt up all that excess glucose that's flying around throughout the blood because there's no more that's coming in. And once you've kind of hit that point where there's, you've burned off all that glucose, now you're starting to convert into that fat burning machine where you're, you're burning fat for energy. And therefore um, you can, during those times of fasting, whether you're doing intermittent fasting or you're just fasting while you're sleeping, because that's a pretty long time to go without eating. And so mm -hmm. at that point, your body still needs energy, even though you're sleeping, it still needs energy. And therefore it's going to be pulling that energy from the fat and burning that fat off. And so, um, that's why a lot of people will lose weight very quickly on the ketogenic diet because um, your body just becomes much more efficient at um, burning that fat. Mm -hmm. And there's this, uh, the ketone that is, people love to talk about is beta-hydroxybutyrate, mm -hmm. BHB. And there's so many cool uh, studies and research out there for a very long time uh, of how the BHB affects the brain and positively um, impacts uh, the brain's utilization uh, of this chemical and how it can start cha create changing in the brain. Because uh, that's part of it too. It's not just this fat burning mist. Literally this, this uh, ketone BHB 
that can do so much and can be seen therapeutically to change so much in the body. Uh, and actually, and I, and I really don't know the benefit of it cause I'm not a big keto guy, uh, but you can buy exogenous or, you know, supplements of ketones mm-hmm. to me. That seems kind of silly. I don't know if it's effective or, or what, but, uh, those exogenous ketones, I'm pretty sure chances are, are BHB uh, mm-hmm. because it's the magic of it is, I keep saying magic almost like jokingly, um, but because BHB is so good uh, for your overall cognition, for your brain's, you know, even like athletic performance. And you were even saying, well, I think it's really important, like how many carbs will it take you to push you out of ketosis and it's different for everyone. Mm-hmm. I was listening to the Peter Atia podcast uh the drive and first of all if you don't listen to that you definitely need to super awesome if i could think like one person just change how my brain thought it would be that guy he's awesome <laughs> uh amazing doctor but anyways uh he he was talking and interviewing this cyclist uh that was saying uh, or they were talking about cycling and literally they were saying this person could have over like a hundred something carbs like 200 carbs and still be in ketosis, mm-hmm. which is insane to think about to anybody who's actually tried the ketogenic diet. Uh, Cause I've tried, I've did keto like three years ago for like four months. And then it was really cool to see how it changed my insulin as a type one afterwards, especially once I started like eating like carbs again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to eat that many carbs and still be ketosis and still have that fat burning and this different like physiology effect. That's insane. Mm-hmm. But it's very individualized to your point, you know, especially with activity. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Like if you and also with the timing of those carbs, I imagine a lot of those carbs that that person was having was probably built around his his workouts because one, he wants to have those carbs to maybe work out better and eat more efficiently. Um, but then at the same time, it's not going to take him out of ketosis because essentially when you're bringing that sugar in, it's going to be going just straight to the muscles because the muscles need that sugar to burn off real quick. Um, Mm -hmm. So timing of those, of those carbs, I think is huge as well. And um, you need to be thinking about that when you're, when you're deciding how much carbs and when you're in um, um, and how you're going to stay in ketosis. Uh, That's really important. But then also another thing to think about is also if you're doing or how much you're fasting at night or, if you're doing intermittent fasting, um, that plays a role in it as well. So if you're going long periods of time without eating, you're likely going to stay in ketosis much easier than um, if you're eating kind of all throughout the whole day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, throwing that element of intermittent fasting definitely uh, jump starts and continues to uh, per, you know, propel you along the ketosis pathway, mm-hmm. um, like for the reasons you've already mentioned. And combining those two therapies, there's definitely a lot of, uh, you know, benefit for it. I'm sure anybody who's heard of the ketogenic diet knows that, you know, the most documented and one of the original creations of the diet, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, I think it was 70s and 80s, uh, was for epilepsy, right? Mm-hmm. And so that utilization, like there's no doubt, there shouldn't be anybody that says there's no reason to do ketogenic and it's not scientific, it's silly. Uh, yeah, because it is like such it's such a beneficial tool for things like epilepsy. Uh, but because of how it affects the brain, again, because of BHB, because of the fuel you're using, because uh, glucose mm-hmm. 
is needed for the brain and it pretty much only the brain's then using the glucose compared to the whole body yep. um and that and glucose the, level is unstable yeah and then the fats that you're getting in and how that helps the brain as well because mm -hmm. the brain is literally just this ball of fat mm -hmm. right and so uh and it's actually really cool because now there's more research going into all right well how does ketogenic help depression yeah you know how does well and that's just can blow people's minds in general like diet and depression mm -hmm. yeah you know that that's a thing for sure for a lot of different reasons which uh, it would almost be cool to like do a depression episode even though that's not well we could definitely talk about diabetes and depression because there's definitely this un uncharacteristic like link between depression and diabetes but mm -hmm. anyways uh it's really cool to see how depression uh, can be positively impacted from the ketogenic diet mm -hmm. and um, that can be from literally because of the fat like you like you know we're kind of talking about now but uh, part of that mechanism is similar or how researchers are finding you know even in studies as recent as 2019 is because of the thought process that people think that's beneficial for epilepsy and that is that eating ketogenic diets will end up increasing a neurotransmitter called GABA which is an inhibitory uh, neurotransmitter and actually decrease then glutamate, which is, you know, excitatory. And so it's going to then with less glutamate in the brain and the body, it's going to change the, the threshold and change the rate of firing within the neurotransmitters and oxidative stress, um, essentially making your neurons in your brain, instead of being super excited and firing all the time, to calmer and being able to process things and not be as stressed from the cellular level, mm -hmm. uh, as well as increase mitochondrial synthesis and biogenesis. You know, these are the things that people are realizing that are benefits from the ketogenic diet. And this isn't even related to diabetes itself, but I think a lot of people with diabetes want to figure out what's the right best diet for them and talking about how these all impact insulin sensitivity is impacted by fats, how fats impact the brain, all these, how lipids is, and because fats and lipids and how lipids is actually a better marker of insulin sensitivity. These are all dots in a very interconnected web. And I think that uh, taking a moment to appreciate that is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It has a lot of therapeutic benefits for, many different people um i think with type 2 diabetes it's really beneficial um i find a lot of success with a lot of people um, with the ketogenic diet um, as far as type 1 diabetes um, i don't so for me personally i don't necessarily strictly try and be in ketosis all the time i don't monitor my ketones by any means um, but i would say i am you know pretty low carb as far as my overall yes. diet and yes, uh, yeah so uh minus uh, carrots yeah exactly and so i think it's also it also can be really beneficial for type 1 diabetics and i say that because it just simply makes it much easier to control your blood sugar and stay quote unquote in range because you're not having those you're not fighting those spikes and, and crashes that can happen with a higher carb diet. Um, and so, and I kind of stumbled upon this even before I really got super into 
um, you know, chiropractic school and functional medicine and all this, all this stuff. Um, I started eating just lower carb uh, meals um, and noticed how so much easier it was just to maintain a good blood sugar in range. I was just kind of blown away. And um, so I've just kind of stuck with it because it's just, it makes life so much easier. I don't have to um, worry near as much because the, you know, my increases in blood sugar are usually much slower. And, and therefore when I correct for things, the, the coming down is also um, much slower and not as dramatic either. So um, it's not as much of a yo-yo um, type situation, which can be very exhausting. And um, so having that steadiness, uh, I think is really beneficial as far as a low carb ketogenic type diet. Mm-hmm. And obviously then the biggest drawback then for type one doing ketogenesis or ketogenesis. Uh, well, I guess that too, um, but doing a ketogenic diet is low blood sugars, right? Mm-hmm. Whether that be low blood sugar from fasting, because you're trying to do fasting and ketogenic, low blood sugar from working out, low blood sugar because you're still giving some insulin, whether it be from a basal perspective, like long-term injection or basal from your pump, or you end up giving yourself a bolus for some meal, you know, low blood sugar for type one diabetic is always a possibility no matter mm-hmm. what. Yeah. And, and then, so the question then is, okay, do I not treat anything? Do I just ride it out or do I then eat fruit? Do I eat Snickers? Like, what do I, do I have a glucose tab? Uh, you know, and those, yeah. those questions then chances are we'll pull you out of ketosis. Uh, the, I feel like I have to say, you know, if you're not treating your low blood sugar for the point of being in ketosis and just riding it out, you shouldn't do that unless you know exactly what you're doing. You know, the rates, you know, all these plenty of other factors uh, because of the damage that can happen with low blood sugar. But I think that's a lesson you and I have learned as well as that sometimes taking a step back from low blood sugars and not freaking out and not eating a lot and kind of trying to center yourself. I like some of, the, some of the strategies we've talked about is beneficial too. But mm-hmm. low blood sugar and ketogenic diet is always a big like asterisk because it'll chances are it's going to throw you out of ketosis. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought this up because there's, I think there's something interesting that happens with that because, because um, like I have a decent amount of lows because I just like to keep mine low. And so obviously you're playing with a little bit of fire there. And so I mm-hmm. have a, I have a decent amount of load, especially in the summertime because I'm a lot more active in the summertime. And so I drink a lot of juice boxes. I eat a lot of sugar. Um, but I was surprised the last blood work I did, which was several months ago. I can't remember um, when exactly I did this, but I was surprised to see that I was in ketosis. And because I'm really? like, I, you know, I drink, you know, a decent amount of juice boxes every day. And those juice boxes have 25 grams of sugar in them. And so I think there is probably something going on with that. I would like to think that um, in that state of low blood sugar, you're, it's kind of in the same situation of exercise where your body just kind of shunting that sugar to where it needs to go. Um, but at the same time, like I said, it, I think it depends on 
your body's physiology at that time. So mm-hmm. um, for me, you know, I'm a fairly active person um, pretty much all through the year. I would say a little bit less in the wintertime. I don't do as much cardio in the wintertime because it's not as fun to be outside. But yeah, you freaking run at 100 degrees because you enjoy it more. <laughs> weirdo. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I think it depends on activity levels too. Um, so your body's physiology at that point. So that can determine, you know, if those lows are going to take you out of ketosis or not. Um, but I, I often wonder if just treating lows in on the ketogenic diet is actually going to take you out of ketosis or if it's not going to have as much of an effect because your blood sugar is low. You should publish a case study on yourself. <laughs> uh, that's very interesting. So it's literally the serum, like you measured serum ketones, like at that blood work. Um, no, this was I did a urine test. Oh, like a UA? Yeah. And you were in ketosis. Yeah. And like you, pretty you were, significant ketosis too. And it wasn't ketoacidosis because you weren't no. your blood sugar wasn't high. No. That's that's crazy. I always kind of wondered that, like when when I was doing the ketogenic diet. And when, especially too, when I was fasting, my thought process with fasting, if I had low blood sugar, uh, whether it be intermittent fasting or extended fast, um, I would use just glucose tabs because the yeah. thought would be the less you have to process it, um, the better it's going to be in terms of having more metabolism, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so if I have low blood sugar, I have glucose, there's no conversion. I don't need to catabolize it or break it down. It just goes straight to my blood, more or less. Uh, and so your thought is still the same, but you, man, you have lots of frozen fruits. Like you have lots of juice boxes. So, mm-hmm. um, that's really interesting that you were able to see that you were in, in ketosis, even despite the lows that you have and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it hammers the point of being individual with yep. this and always, always, always being individualized, uh, with this. And this is what, why individualized medicine and personalized medicine is what things have to be. Mm-hmm. because not everyone fits in a box and you're not crazy for wanting to try a ketogenic diet. You're not crazy for trying, wanting to try intermittent fasting. You're not crazy eat for trying vegetarian or vegan. That was hard for me to say. You're not crazy for <laughs> trying to uh, go carnivore. You're not crazy for trying to be paleo. Um, you know, my favorite studies are ones that combine all these approaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I found a, a uh, case study in that was published again in last year, 2019, where they put a woman on the ketogenic diet. Uh, she had patient patient centered nutrition education. She was doing HIT workouts, high intensity interval training, um, as well as psychotherapy. And they measured biomarkers of her diabetes. She was type one. Uh, measured biomarkers of her diabetes, biomarkers of her depression, and then. Uh, clinical markers of her depression, you know, surveys, things like that. And everything improved when she did this combined approach. Everything improved. Her depression improved. Her diabetes got more control. Her metabolic health improved. When you're combining these therapies, when you're doing what's right for that person, uh, you and I were talking even before the podcast, like it's, it's as doctors, you know, we try not to think about the social economics because our health is our health. Your health, you know, a pound of prevention is worth a way more than a pound of, you know, acute care. I forgot. I'm blanking on the phrase. Uh, but we try to leave economics out of it 
so we can just focus on the patient. But even things like, where do you live? Are you in a food desert? Do you live in a city? Are you in the middle of nowhere where you can't get access to high quality fruits or very clean meats? Like these things all play a role in the decisions and how you have to eat and then consume your consume and then therefore live your life. Uh, and so the individualism of your ketosis, like you are individualism of your athleticism, all these things play in effects. And now I think I'm just going on soapbox over and over again, or just <laughs> on a rant. Uh, but I think it's super important for us to both as, you know, you and I to recognize, but as well as any listeners to recognize just that it's okay to do what feels right for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you said, combining as much as you can, as far as promoting your health is going to have the biggest impact, obviously. And so um, hopefully by listening to our podcast and other podcasts, you can generate ideas for yourself um, as far as what you can do to start improving your health, whether it's for your diet or your exercise routine or your sleep habits or your stress um, reduction habits. Um, Combining all those different areas in your life is huge and can just boost your your function um, throughout your whole entire body and therefore give yourself um, the opportunity to live your best life and your most enjoyable life too. Mm. Can't think of what a better way to end an episode than on that. I can. One burst your beta cells, Grady. <laughs> All right. So I've got a good one for you today. Oh, uh, man. Here we go. Yeah. So I... You know, recently I switched insurance companies and um, so as a result, I had to get a new prescription for my insulin and this insurance company um, technically only covers um, Novolog um, and I had Humalog before, but I had Novolog way before that. So I wasn't, you know, wasn't worried about it, but they actually only cover the generic version of Novolog, which I didn't even really know they had generic Novolog. And, um, so I was like, okay, whatever. It shouldn't be any different. So I got it and seemed fine. Nothing really different. And so when I fill my insulin pump up, I usually take the vial out of the fridge. And then once I take the vial out of the fridge, I just keep the vial out on the desk. Um, and don't really put the vial back in. I just use it all up and, so that's what I did with this one. And I would say the first couple, two, three um, insulin ports and insulin reservoirs. And I filled my reservoir halfway up. So that's 150 units. And so the first like two or three of those, everything was relatively normal. Didn't really notice any difference. Everything was pretty smooth. And then it's I started noticing that my blood sugar was kind of hanging around like getting higher and kind of hanging around higher. And I'm like, you know, like what's going on? Like nothing's really changed with my diet. Nothing's really changed with my exercise routine. Um, I was like, am I more stressed? You know, what's going on? And so I was trying to think through it. Couldn't really come up with any solid answers. Uh, You can always throw out that stress um, idea because, you know, in some ways we're always stressed, but I, I was thinking relatively wise, I don't feel any more stressed than I was. And so I kind of brushed it off for a little bit and then um, it just kept getting worse. Like I kept 
getting higher and higher and staying higher. And I was taking like, you know, twice as much insulin as I usually do just to bring it, uh, bring it down. Wow. Yeah. And so I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to try a new vial and see if, if that's it. Because, you know, you know, sometimes you think it might be your port site that's bad, but I would take the port site out and it was, you know, it looked perfect. It was perfectly straight. So there's no kinks in it. So I was like, well, all right, I'm just gonna, you know, change it. So I, I took out a different vial and refilled my pump and then bam, I was right back to where I was before this all started. So I was like, well, uh, it must've went bad. So I, I just won't leave it out, you know, in between filling up my pump. So, um, so I filled it, filled it up, put it back in the fridge. Um, everything seemed fine. And then I started noticing that even though I was keeping it in the fridge between filling up my pump, it would still go bad before I would change my pump. So for example, like that first day and a half would be perfect. Everything looked good. Everything was responding the same way as it normally does. And then that last day and a half or day on that pump site, it would start to raise up again and kind of stay high and I'd be fighting highs. And, mm. and then boom, I'd change it. I'd refill it and then boom, it'd be back to low level and normal level. And so I have, I've um, surmised that the insulin is no good. And it, and that, that part is just like the, the part that really kind of burst my beta cells is the fact that your insulin as as a type one diabetic is like your life source. That's like yeah, your your dependency. Yeah, exactly. You you depend on that to be your consistency, because everything else in your life and everything else in your world is changing constantly, and just those factors alone is hard enough to try and calculate how much insulin you need at that time. And so then to have my insulin start to fail me um, was just so frustrating is and it's still frustrating um i did call the insurance company on friday and kind of got some things figured out and so i think i'm gonna get um some name brand stuff in and hopefully that resolves everything man yeah what a a sobering moment because you are mr uh control mr lockdown like you have it you are one with the insulin, like, you know, <laughs> you know, and you're so good about managing your life and your diabetes management, but yet, even with all the knowledge in the world, mm -hmm. you don't have the insulin. It doesn't matter. Yep. Um, and therefore making the, uh, conversation of insulin affordability, insulin access, uh, all those types of things. Um, you know, here in America is one thing, but then in other countries, it's, that's a, I, I don't even understand, like I haven't even attempted just because of my worldview to understand what that is like in other countries, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and how hard that can be. And it's literally your life. And so what a humbling, sobering, frustrating moment mm -hmm. that your beta cells were burst uh, with all this going on. So, yeah, yeah, it was rough. But what about you? What what's been bursting your beta cells? Um, so kind of similar. I have a similar story, I, I suppose. Uh, it wasn't too bad, but um, I, I got a low battery 
like signal on my pump. And so I changed my battery and then all of a sudden the battery wasn't being accepted. Mm. Like it just wasn't. And then the original battery wasn't being accepted. Okay. And I look at the top of the cap where you screw in the battery for the pump. And I was like, this doesn't look right. This just looks like plastic. And the, <laughs> I, I guess I'm not an electrical engineer, but the metal part that captures, you know, the positive ions of that battery um, or whatever it does uh, broke off. Mm. And so somehow, and I don't know where it went. It just disappeared in the thin air because uh, <laughs> it was working literally before I opened it. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know where it went. Um, but then all of a sudden my pump was off oh, no. and I didn't have, uh, you know, I was like, I don't know what to do. Call Medtronic. Uh, and they said, you know, in 24, 36 hours, you'll get a new one. You'll, we'll get a sentence. So they send it to my work. But for that time, and she, all she said was, she's like, so use your backup plan until, until it gets there. Click. And then I was like, <laughs> yeah, backup plan. Totally yeah. A hundred percent down <laughs> for sure. And I did it. <laughs> I mean, I know what to do. Uh, and I was at, this was like in the morning uh, at this point, I already ran did my morning run. Like I was literally already dressed, like literally about to go out the door, make my commute to the office and it, it broke. And so I didn't, wasn't thinking about everything that I had. All I was like, I know I do have injectable insulin and a bunch of needles. And I grabbed that and I walked out the door because I didn't want to be late. And it was mm-hmm. late by a minute, but whatever. Uh, I don't like to be late. And, but then, so all day, since I didn't have any long-term with me or I didn't grab any, because I didn't think about it, which I did actually have long-term injectable insulin in my fridge. I just forgot about it. Mm, yeah. uh, I was just trying to inject randomly units to get me down for a basil as well as then for any food that I was consuming, which ended up not being a lot uh, because of my basil rates were all in my pump. I didn't memorize those or have that written down somewhere else. And plus, you know, the pump does more than once every like 30 minutes. It's literally a constant drip uh, with short acting insulin. And so I tried, it was like, okay, every 30 minutes I'll do this in between patients. Uh, And even still it was, you know, I got the 300s and then I worked out in the middle of the day again. It was 200 and eventually I was crashing down. And so that was frustrating and scary for a little bit as well. But then I, when I got home later that evening, it's like, all right, I do have long-term insulin. Let's use that. And I was like, pretty sure this Lantus is like whatever my total units were a day for basil I should do. And I was like, I don't know. So I tried being on the safe side and I did like four units less than what Uh, my pump says and that still was too much and I was fighting lows like all night all the next morning and then all day until it kind of ran out uh, because eventually I got my pump but then I would have my basil shut off because I already had my insulin in me Uh, so again it was this sobering moment excuse me um, that literally a battery changed my whole world yeah Uh, similar to I guess your insulin but the insulin was a function of the insurance company for you yep and so that was more frustrating because I was trying to do other things and life was moving pretty fast that week and everything else. And I was trying a new gym out and I wanted to be efficient and I couldn't because my diabetes pulled me back in mm-hmm. to the sober reality that doesn't matter all the knowledge in the world. But if that, uh, that was one of the moments where it felt like an anchor, not so much, but it was just like, man, this is really like controlling things. 
Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's got to consume even like diabetes consumes a lot of your brain space anyways, but that's got to consume just like dang near all of it. Um, Cause not only are you just stressing about a, you don't have like your life source with you to like make sure that you're constantly getting that insulin that you need. But then at the same time, you're just like the unknown of, you know, you're not used to going through something like this. Mm-hmm. Like you're not used to having to be your own pump. And so the stress of like, all right, am I doing this right? Or, you know, what am I going to do um, for the rest of the day? And how's that going to play out? Um, mm-hmm. That's just, yeah, that's really stressful. Yeah. Cause it's not like, it's not like I could have just said, all right, work. I'm not going in. I yeah. got to take care of myself. Like work was there. Patients were still there mm-hmm. and still had to do my thing. Uh, you know, school would be a little different. You know, you could maybe not go to school, but once you're an adult with diabetes, type one diabetes, you got to kind of act a little differently. Yep. Exactly. Right? So, uh, but on the plus side, it was kind of nice not to, I had less things in my pockets. <laughs> <laughs> right. So looking on the positive. Yep. So anyways, we definitely weren't, didn't talk about the ketogenic diet as much as I thought we were going to. Uh, but I think last episode and this episode set the stage. Uh, they kind of complement each other into this bigger conversations that we can have. And, uh, you know, the guests that, that we want to have on because uh, we're covering some different types of content. So, um, you know, if people want it and, you know, reach out to us, maybe we'll have more discussions on ketogenic specifically. But uh, you know, I thought we kind of hit a lot of not just high points, but because we actually did go in depth uh, with some with a lot of things throughout mm-hmm. this episode. So uh, with that, uh, I appreciate anyone who has listened to us, uh, you know, since releasing the gastric episode, uh, we've hit over a thousand downloads, which was very humbling and very cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thank you, everyone who has listened. And thank you if you've shared it and uh, I continue to ask you and we continue to ask you to share it and we appreciate you and engage with us so we can engage with you and uh, we, cause we love to do so. And some of the questions we've individually gotten because the podcast has been fantastic. So with that, uh, I will call it a day. We'll call it an episode and uh, yeah, we appreciate everyone. We'll catch you on another episode of the Die Buddies podcast. See ya. so much for listening to today's episode if you found value in today's conversation we would appreciate it if you gave a five-star review it really helps us branch out our community and get our message across to those who really need to hear it if you want to interact with us on social media you can follow us on the die buddies podcast on facebook twitter and instagram or if you have any questions comments concerns or moral outrages you can email us at the die buddies podcast at gmail.com thanks